In the 14th century, there was a young man who was enrolled at Oxford University in England. His name was John. John was a formidable thinker, wise beyond his years, and was taken notice by his professors. After college, he would rise to the attention of the King of England and given many notable positions throughout his career. He was thoughtful in his thinking and powerful with his pen. It was his pen that would get him the most trouble. As John sought to reform the church, particularly the Roman church at the time, with a single blow rather than a patient long-term approach. Perhaps it was the impatience that was affected by what he had witnessed many years earlier in England. In 1349, the, the country of England was plagued by what is now known as the Black Plague. Half of the country died during this plague. Tens of thousands killed in his own town. And so death was not something that was a distance relative of his, but something that was close, near to everyone, affecting and infecting everyone. And because of what he witnessed and experienced, the death that was often around him, John was passionate about taking the teachings of Scripture to the everyday person. Therefore, he would organize in his lifetime a group of preachers known by those who would be accompanied by them as the poor preachers. These were not official licensed preachers in the church, but rather laymen and women who would take the gospel to the everyday person. And they took little pamphlets along with them that contained Scripture written in the English language. John had spent many years translating the Bible into English. John was not skilled and mastered in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, and so he had to rely on the Latin translation of the Bible to take it into English. Therefore, it wasn't a great translation, but it was a translation. It was something that the people of God could use and study and to know. Just like Peter Waldo in Lyons as he translated the Bible into French, so John was convinced that if the Bible could be translated into the language of the everyday person, well then true revival could happen. One would write of the book that had been the sealed up book. He tore the clasps that the nation was yet unbandaged. Might look thereon and therein find salvation. Even in the midst of tremendous darkness, this was the, the glimmer of light that had begun to dawn. We, we are still 300 years from the Protestant Reformation, but God, through His Word, was beginning to shine a light in the midst of darkness. This translation of the Bible into English was John Wycliffe's greatest work. The Bible translation into English would ultimately lead to his death. The hatred for John Wycliffe was so great that the Church of Rome, 40 years after he was dead, 
were so angered by him that they dug up his bones to burn them alive, as if he was still alive. Driven by such hatred, they took these ashes and threw them into the river that that flowed through the Avon and into the river. It is a reminder that God's people, in the midst of such darkness, were committed to the Word of God being preached and taught, not through some clerical office, but through the everyday person. Why would Wycliffe give his life and reputation, even his reputation among the most powerful even the king of England, to ensure that the Bible was translated into the language of everyday person. I believe that it was because of what he had experienced there during the Black Plague. Seeing thousands upon thousands dying without a Savior. Dying without the opportunity to hear the Gospel and repent and believe. He knew that death was literally at the door knocking. And therefore, he wanted to take the gospel to as many people and in many places as he could. Friend, this is what Jesus has been stressing in this section of Luke's gospel. That death was imminent. And that the the disciples and those around them needed to be prepared that when Jesus comes again, He will come in glory and judgment. And the final judgment will be declared. And there will be no second chances. That today is the day of salvation. The question that one of the disciples asked Jesus a number of weeks ago In chapter 13 and verse 23, that those, will those who are saved be few? You see, this, that question was that timely question we considered last week. And that question continues into into chapter 14. It, it, It helps us understand what Jesus is doing as he confronts the religious leaders and the spiritual elite. Those who thought themselves to be first were actually last. These religious elites, they thought in and of themselves that because of their merits, because of their good works, because of their religiosity, and particularly their ethnic heritage, that they must be the first into the kingdom of God. They must be God's prized possession. But one of the wonderful truths of divine election is that God undermines men's pride. As God graciously calls not the great and the powerful and the noble of the world, but He calls the least and the the poor, the lame, the widows, the ones that the society forgets about and rejects. Those are the ones that God is inviting into His kingdom. But even those who, because they were Jews, thought that they would be recipients of God's blessing, find themselves outside of God's eternal purposes in Christ. 
And as this chapter unfolds, Jesus will make emphatically clear that it is not those who think they deserve the kingdom who will enter the kingdom, but it is those who rightly understand their need for a Savior. Those who will devote themselves to the Savior and live a radical life of devotion and discipleship to the one true King Jesus. With that in mind, I invite you, if you've not done so, to turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. This morning we're going to consider this entire chapter. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher." Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those reclining at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet. He sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Uh, But they all alike began to make excuses. The The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the cities and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And his master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet.'" 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and has not been able to finish, all who will see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is one overarching idea that Luke has in recording these particular events to us. And the question is, who are welcomed into the kingdom of God? The point of our passage this morning is that as Christians, we should have confidence as to who will and who will not be a part of the kingdom of God. As Christians, it's not that we are judging others and assessing, oh, he's in and she's out. But rather, Jesus is is making clear to us in our minds who is in and who is out. He offers, if you will, two opposing views of the kingdom of God. The the vantage point of those who are out and the, the vantage point of those who are in. The story unfolds naturally in two parts. First, Jesus there at the dinner table with the religious elite of Jerusalem at the house of the Pharisee there in verses 1 all the way through verse 24. Then in verse 25, we see Luke transitions with this phrase, now great crowds accompany him, and he turned and said to them, And so Jesus here uh, is, is contrasting two pictures. Those who think they're in and those who are really in. Those who think because they're first, they must be the ones who are welcomed, but it's those who are, are really the last who deny themselves, who deny their own lives. They're the ones that Jesus welcomes. Well, let's look at these two points. First, who's out? Well, those who reject Jesus as king through willful disobedience are out. That's the main idea of verses 1 through 24. Those who reject God's purposes for their life are out. They've been rejected. They are not a part of the kingdom of God. But what is so troubling in these verses is that those in the story think that they're actually in Isn't this fearful? Those who think they're in the kingdom of God are actually on the outside of the kingdom of God. We notice a number of things. Number one, Jesus silences the legalism 
that was the basis of their entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus here in verses 1 through 6 silences legalism as a means of entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, rule following will never merit your entrance into heaven. Being good and following rules will never be meritorious enough for God to welcome you into His kingdom. This is what the religious leaders thought. That if they could just obey rules, then God would be acceptable of them. But we see that they followed God, not because out of some effort to please God, but out of their own wickedness. Look at the picture that Luke paints here in verse 1. That as Jesus was sitting there at the dinner table, the Pharisees were watching Him carefully. Carefully. The word there means to lie in wait for. They were hanging on every word of Jesus, not so that they could obey His word, but so that they could use His word to attack Him. They were like a lion waiting for their prey to attack. And and so Jesus here is being set up for failure. Or so that's what they think. And the tension of the text is, is that Jesus escapes their every attempt to trap Him. In fact, later in Luke 20, Luke records this, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. They lied in wait. And, And so even their desire to obey the Sabbath was tinged by a heart that was not truly genuine. They weren't genuinely trying to obey the Sabbath. This is the third and final time Jesus is confronting this particular false teaching about the Sabbath. Notice here the question that Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? There was a man there before them who had a a disease that was resulting in tremendous pain and swelling of his extremities. And this man was suffering not only physically, but noticeably as his blood vessels were literally exploding under his skin because of this disease. And Jesus brings healing to the man on the Sabbath. And he questions him and he says, okay, you think what I did was wrong. But there is no Old Testament verse that was forbidding this. It was their own religious rules that were preventing that. But yet they themselves would rescue their sons or save their prized possessions on the Sabbath day. Jesus is using the argument of of a lesser to greater. He's saying if you would save something lesser, like an animal, how much more should you save someone who is created in the image of God? Jesus here is digging at their underlining theological understanding of the law. They thought that the law could ultimately save them. But the thing that the law pointed to was Jesus Himself who was standing before them. 
This is what the author of Hebrews says. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Jesus was trying to point out the reality that their legalism would never save, but that he could save them. And he demonstrated it visibly to them by healing the man. But yet their hardness of heart prevented them. They were out because they rejected God's purposes. But as the story unfolds in verses 7 through 11, Jesus also exposes their pride. Jesus exposes their pride. As Jesus took occasion, as they were watching him judiciously, so he was watching them in return. And he noticed a number of things that when these religious elite would, would begin to gather into this man's home, that they would choose the seats closest to the head table, the, the positions of honor. And so they were jockeying for power and position. And Jesus is saying to them, why do you do these things? If you do this, then it's going to bring shame upon you. What if you, you go and you sit at the head table and then someone else comes along and says, hey friend, you, you, this, this is reserved for someone greater than you. Of course, Jesus here is teaching us to be humble, but that's not the main idea. The main idea of this particular story isn't be humble, but rather to understand that, that salvation is not meritorious. We ought, as Christians, never to think of ourselves in a prideful sense as deserving of God's redemption. We ought never to think that this was somehow meritorious, that God looked through the corridor of time and said, man, I have to have him or I have to have her on my team. The gospel rejects such viewpoints that God somehow in His foreknowledge saw these things and therefore saved us. Now Jesus here is teaching us that, that we ought to take a position of humility and then exaltation. My friend, isn't this the way of Christ? Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming a servant, by becoming a man that he might die the, the death that men deserved, and that because of his obedience to the Father, he then was exalted to the place high above every name, such that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Pride is an infectious disease that hinders man from salvation. Cicero wrote this, Nature has made us enthusiastic seekers after honor, and once we have caught it, as it were, some glimpse of its radiance, there is nothing that we are not prepared to bear and go through in order to secure it. The author of the Proverbs say this, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Friend, do you somehow think that you have received salvation because of something good in you? No, it is despite your own goodness that God has saved you. Friend, the gospel tells us that it is our sin that is in need of salvation. Us, 
We, there is nothing in us, nothing good. So those who sit in pride and think they, they, they merit are, are cast out, Jesus said, unwelcomed. Jesus also here challenges generosity, doesn't he? Look there in verses 12 through 14. Jesus goes on to, to, to use this opportunity as an illustration. He says, listen, when you invite people, who was on your invitation list? Mr. Pharisee, when you sent out your invitations, who was on the list? Oh, surely it was your friends. Surely it was your neighbors. Surely it was those who would be able in reciprocity to give back to you. Jesus here confronts the natural behavior and the natural love of man. And that is self-love. Notice what he does here. He says, when you give a banquet, don't invite the people who can pay you back, but rather invite people who can't pay you back. Jesus here is exposing our natural proclivity in our fallen condition to self-love. To self-love. I've jokingly called it hallmark love. It's reciprocal love. We give in order to receive. An entire holiday is based on that. It's called Christmas. It's called Christmas. Not the Christian holiday. I, I'm referring to the pagan holiday. The one where you give gifts and you exchange them with your friends and family, and you give gifts and they give you gifts in return? You, you know what I'm speaking of. We give in order to receive. Jesus says, no, 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 don't, don't give to those who you know are going to give back to you, who can repay you, who can repay the favor, but rather give to those who have no means possible of giving. Give, in other words, to get an eternal reward. Jesus here is exposing self-love. He's saying, if you love yourself, you cannot be my disciple. This is what he goes on to denounce in the section we'll consider in just a moment. Verse 33. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These religious elite had such an infectious love for themselves that they saw themselves as fit to receive. But the Christian posture is not one of receiving, but of giving. This is what the Apostle Paul says in, to the churches in Corinth. He says, we, we give generously because of the inexpressible gift that we've received. We've received Jesus, and therefore we've received everything. This is what we often sing in one of our, our most famous, you know, favorite hymns. What more can heaven give? What more can heaven give now that it is given Jesus? What more can we receive, and therefore we are people who give? Well, if you will, a nail in the coffin is driven as Jesus concludes. As someone began to hear about this wonderful feast that was to be given, his mind was taken up, not Jesus, but one who we are told was reclining at table. Someone there at the head table, perhaps, 
was taken in with this messianic vision that Jesus was painting about this wonderful feast, about the lame and the poor being welcomed there at this feast. And he says to Jesus, blessed, blessed is those who get to eat at this feast. In other words, he's sitting there joyfully proclaiming to Jesus, man, I'm glad I got in. I'm glad I'm a part of the kingdom. I'm glad I will be in heaven. I'm glad I will be in the kingdom, getting to feast on all of these delicacies. I'm glad I'm first in line. And Jesus, as Jesus does so often, says, friend, you ain't even going to be there. You don't know what you're talking about. Look at what he says. A man once gave a banquet and invited many, he says. And as he goes on, he says, he invited all these people and he says, come, come on, it's time. In this particular culture, two invitations would have been given. The first invitation was given and then a second invitation. This was often due to ge- geography and distance and it was hard to get around. It wasn't as you know, easy as hopping in a car or on a plane to go somewhere. And so two invitations were given. The first one was extended. Now here comes the second one. And so they begin to go out and gather the people for this particular feast and we find excuses. And so Jesus here is confronting their excuses. Why won't they accept that He is King? Why won't they worship Him as the one true and living God? And Jesus outlines three excuses. Number one, we see the first one is driven by what? It's driven by money. I've bought a field and I have to go and see it. Please have me excused. And then another man comes and he says, oh, no, 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 I, I have some oxen and these oxen are going to work. They're going to make me money and I'm going to produce a lot and I need to go make sure that they are hardworking ox so I can make a, a big return on my investment. And the last man, he really doesn't even have an excuse. He just says, I just got married and I, got, I can't come. Jesus confronts misplaced expectations and the blindness of the religious elite. They think they're in, but they're really out. But notice here, in a a wonderful literary turn of events, what Jesus does. He says, no, 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 it's not those that have the financial means that are the successful businessmen, the ones who have their families all together and seem to have their life put together that are invited into the kingdom of God. But notice who then is invited. The master says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring the poor, the crippled, and the blame, and the lame, the blind and the lame. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the alleys and the back corners. I want you to go to the dumpsters. I I want you to go to the Donaldson Parks of the world where where, where the homeless are living. No, 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 no. I don't want you to go out to where, where the rich people and, and their, their fine houses are. I want you to go to the places where good, upstanding citizens know not to go, lest they be robbed, lest they be afflicted. I want you to go to the hospital beds. I want you to go to the nursing homes. I want you to go to the places where society has sought to forget about. And those are the people I want you to invite. But then there was still room, isn't there? 
The story goes on. He says, we've done that, Master, and there's still room. What, where else do we go? And he says, verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come. He says, go to the Gentiles. Highways and hedges is, is insider language for go to the people whose society rejects the riffraff, the traveler, the one who is unacceptable. Brothers and sisters, when will we learn that the doctrine of unconditional election is not a doctrine that ought to promote pride, but humility? It ought to instill in us an attitude of utter dependence upon God's goodness and not on ours. There is nothing, friend, in us that was meritorious that God would seek to save us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Who are the wise, he says? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, here it is, invited, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider the illustration that Jesus is giving here. Consider it. Think about it. Put your little brain around it for just a moment. He didn't call the elite. He didn't call the influential or the influencers. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friend, what a, what a reminder. As we think in application of this passage, let us guard against such pride that thinks that we merited salvation, that we deserve God's calling, that somehow we have measured up to God's good pleasure. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ came to die. For us, let us, let us lay humbly at the cross and understand that I did not deserve this. But by the grace of God go I. Let that be our attitude as we interact with one another. Let us understand there is no religious elite here. We ought to fight against any form of elitism where we somehow are better off than another sinner. No, we are all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That is all we are, friend. 
We are the lowest and the least. And isn't it wonderful to know that in God's strange providence, this is how He continues to save? This isn't to say that He doesn't save the rich and the powerful and the noble. Of course He does. Such as some of you. But the normative people that He saves are the people whom our society seeks to reject. Are they the people that we want to take the gospel to? Are, the pe- are they the people that you actively take the gospel to? Perhaps our evangelism is weak and our results are diminished because we're not taking it to the people that God is actually calling. The, God whom, the people whom God has purposed to save. The poor. The homeless. The least, these are the ones God says He is calling. Jesus makes it clear it is not the religious lead or those who have a mere ethnic connection to the people of God who will be saved, but rather those who accept Him as Messianic King, who will be given entrance into His kingdom. So let us look here in the last few moments we have at those who are in. Jesus here, as the crowds began to grow, was His customary response wasn't to say, yes, look how big the crowds are, but rather to say, let me see what I can say to make the crowd smaller. I challenge you to read Luke's Gospel. Every time the crowds were the biggest, Jesus would say some of the most provocative things. And here He does it again. I mean, imagine here, I mean, the, the, the pews are full, the sanctuary's overflowing, and the pastor gets up and he says to the congregation, unless you hate your family, you can't be a Christian, goodbye. This is what Jesus does. Is there anyone there that wants to come after me? Yes, Jesus, there's thousands of them, look at them all around, it's wonderful, you're a success. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, don't, don't, don't do it again. Don't do the hate talk again, Jesus. Don't make it hard for them. Just, you know, uh, look, we've got to ease them into this thing. We've got to give them, you know, five or six steps. We've got to make them feel good about themselves. Uh, Jesus, uh, he wants the best for your life. Uh, Come, it's easy to follow Jesus. It's it's a matter of praying this prayer. Repeat after me and you too can be saved. No, that's not what Jesus does. Hey, does anybody want to come after me, Jesus says? And you have to hate. Now Jesus here is not calling on us to hate. If you're reading into this text that Jesus is saying we literally have to hate, that is not what he's saying. What he is saying is this, that your love and devotion to him as king will, will, will look like hate to everyone else. It will look, because your allegiance to Him is so strong that those around, as they see the way you care for others, it will be so diminished that it will look as if you hate them. In other words, He says, those who would be His disciple must love their family less than they love Christ. And friend, I know many of you have faced this particular challenge, and it has come at a great cost to you of losing mom and dad because you want to be faithful to follow Christ, losing 
husband or wife, losing your children because you want to be faithful in following Christ. Let me just commend you for your fearlessness. The point that Jesus is making here is that discipleship means a change of allegiance. No longer are you allegiant to the things of this world and the people of this world and the social structures of this world, but you are your first and foremost, your allegiance is to Christ. He is your king. But he also says that if you want to be my disciple, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you were to die a Roman crucifixion, you would bear the weight of your own cross. You would carry your own cross. No one carried someone else's cross. You carried your cross. And the image that Jesus is painting here is that when you pick up that cross and you make your way to the place of the crucifixion, you don't lay it down and say, okay, all right, well, that was fun exercise. I'm out of here. No, 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 no. You, when you pick up the cross, you carry it, it means that at the end of the road, wherever that ends, you die on that, that, that cross. In other words, Jesus is saying here that discipleship means putting self to death. And that means daily putting yourself to death. Husband, as you drive home and you park in your driveway and you're about to go in and care for your children and your wife, you put yourself to death. Yeah, you worked long hours. I don't really care uh, about that. Uh, you have a new job, and that's to serve your family and your children and to love on them. You have to die to yourself. We have to die to ourselves when we come in here and we gather and we serve one another or when we spend long hours counseling and discipling one another and helping one another follow Jesus. I'm dying to myself. Yeah, I really wanted to you know, be a part of that sporting event. Yeah, I really wanted to watch that, but you know what? I had to die to myself. Die to my selfish ambitions. I passed over that promotion so that I could have more time to disciple my children or my church brothers and sisters. Because I knew if I took that promotion, what would happen is, is I would have little time to be able to disciple others and I care more about the kingdom of God than I do about power and position and money. And Jesus also says, discipleship means renouncing, renouncing all, relinquishing everything, relinquishing everything. He ends with that in verse 33, therefore if any one of you would, does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is what the early church did. They sold their possessions, they sold their stuff in order to help those in need. They saw everything they had as kingdom possessions that they could leverage for kingdom purposes. What are you holding on to and still trying to follow Jesus? He gives us two illustrations here, doesn't he? He says that counting the cost of following Jesus is a costly count. He says the first illustration is of a man building a building. And it's a clear enough illustration, isn't it? If we're going to set out to build some structure, some, some big massive thing, we're going to count the cost. We're going to consider how much will the you know, foundation cost, how much will the building cost, all of these things. It makes sense, right? He, thought, he was thoughtful about it. And then in the second illustration, it's equally wise about a king going out to war. Clearly, he's not going to go out to war if he doesn't have enough troops in order to defeat his enemy. 
What's the point? That following Jesus ought to be deliberate and thoughtful. It ought not to be spurious or momentary. It ought rather to be given thoughtful attention to what decision the individual is making. Therefore, we ought to be slow to affirm. We ought never to lead someone to make a decision without first deliberately and intentionally making, un- making sure that they are counting the cost. You spend more time thinking about signing your mortgage documents than you have thought about following Jesus. Let's be honest. You've given more thought to financial commitments than you have really thought about what does it really mean to follow Jesus. Uh, you want me to die? Whoa, I thought this was just about me having the best life now. I thought this was just to be about me, you know, having some, some blessings here. Uh, I, I just thought this was about checking off a box. I, I don't know about this whole death business. This seems quite creepy and strange. I think I'm going to go to the Methodist church. Jesus says, no, if you want to follow me, you better be thinking about what you're doing. And so he concludes with this ominous warning, doesn't he? It seems to be quite strange. Does it fit with what we're talking about? Does it fit with what Jesus is going to talk I think it rounds it out quite nicely. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can it be salt be restored? Now Jesus isn't speaking here of sodium chloride. Sodium chloride doesn't cease to be sodium chloride. That's like kind of impossible. It's always sodium chloride. Jesus is referring to salt that was taken out of the Dead Sea. This particular salt could lose its saltiness. The point here is, is if a disciple, a so-called disciple, does not count the cost, then he will become ineffective and therefore fall away. Jesus here is using this illustration to warn against pretenders. Those who are masquerading as disciples, but are truly unsavory and therefore ineffective. One who pretends to be a Christian friend will be cast out. And I wonder, have you been masquerading as a Christian? You've done a good job. We are impressed with your skill. And your attention to detail is applaudable. But I wonder, are you merely salt that will be thrown out? You see, it is only those who truly count the cost of following Jesus, who surrender to Him as both Lord and Savior. And it is a reminder that following Jesus is a costly journey. It is an arduous one, a difficult one, but one that brings about salvation. And so let me invite you to come and follow Him. Do not let the difficulty of it prevent you. Throw off, friend, the chains of legalism. They will not save. Fight off the temptation to pride and self-promotion by giving generously to the work of the Gospel. Forgo these continual excuses that we've considered this morning and count the cost and come and follow. It is the greatest decision that you'll ever make.
to come and to spend your life for this king and for his kingdom for now and for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, along this journey that we would come and count the cost and follow Christ and there come this great reward of eternal life. Even now as we come to feast upon our Savior, upon the blood sacrifice for the remission of our sins, the body that was broken in our place, help us, we pray, for Your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen.